What's up? You're listening to Fork the Product. I'm your host, Nick Casares. And I'm your other host, Zach Cohen. Fork the Product is a podcast that explores the intersection of blockchain, product, and user experience. We interview founders and builders to understand how they're approaching problems in the blockchain space. The show is brought to you in part by Polyant Labs. Nick, can you talk for a second about Polyant? Sure. Polyant is a blockchain-focused, early-stage startup incubator. We're headquartered in Phoenix, Arizona. And I say we're because in my other life, I'm the director of product for Polyant. Long story short, we help founders bring their ideas to life by providing them with early-stage funding, mentoring, and support with things like development, design, and marketing services. If you're an entrepreneur or developer and you have a vision that you'd like to discuss with Polyant, visit our website at polyant.io. That's P-O-L-Y-I-E-N-T dot I-O for more information. Great. Thanks for your support, Polyant. Now on to today's show. In this episode, we speak with Jason Hobby, head of design at Compound. Hailing from Stumptown, Oregon, Jason has deep design experience, previously leading pro and institutional product design at Coinbase, including Coinbase Custody, Pro, and Prime. Before diving into crypto, Jason cut his teeth on product on the founding team of Uber Freight by way of auto. In his free time, he's listening to obscure music or casting cardboard spells in Magic the Gathering. Compound is an open source autonomous protocol built for developers to unlock a universe of new financial applications. The mission of Compound is to unlock the significant portion of cryptocurrencies that currently sit idle on exchanges and in wallets without yielding interest. We dive into how Compound has leveraged great design to drive adoption and become one of the most prominent DeFi projects in the space. Enjoy. So welcome back, everybody, to season two of Fork the Product. Uh, Today, we're speaking with Jason Hobby from Compound. Uh, He's joining us on the show to talk about DeFi. Jason, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to have you. Thanks for having me, guys. Excited to be here. So to kick us off, uh, you know, we've been focusing this season on two aspects of interesting blockchain and crypto projects, one being DeFi projects and the other being NFTs. Compound fits into the former. And I think it'd be great if you could just kick us off with a bit of a high-level intro of Compound. Uh, you know, how do you how do you explain the project? What is it? Tell us a little bit more about it. Compound is really a um, traditional finance tool in crypto and in DeFi. That tool is money markets. So at a really high level, Compound is like a money market in crypto. What does that really mean? It really just means creating interest rates for assets and kind of trying to be the backbone of those. Traditionally, in money markets, um, in, you know, in a finance 1.0 world, money markets are really used as kind of a, a short-term way to part capital. So let's say you are a billion-dollar commercial real estate developer. You just finished a project. You're getting ready to gear up for another one. You know, you're not going to take all of your fiat money and, and convert it into bonds or Apple stock or something, right? Yeah. So what people will do is they'll throw it into a money market. So you'll get a pretty high interest rate on the assets supplied. And it's really instantaneous. You can put it in and out kind of whenever. So it's a really critical piece of the finance 1.0 infrastructure. So, you know, when Robert and Jeff were kind of tinkering around in crypto, Robert being an interest rate analyst in a past life saw this need pretty clearly and just kind of took it from there. Yeah, the, re- the rest is kind of history. And just to expand on that a little bit, who is the the primary uh, target for for Compound? In terms of a user, there isn't you know uh, you know past life that I've worked at Uber and some other places. There isn't really a you know uh, specific user type that that Compound is aiming for. Um, 
really the best way to think about it is it's a two-sided marketplace. Uh, you have a supply side uh, where people are supplying assets and a borrowing side where people are using those assets supplied um, for whatever, um, but borrowing against them. Um, each one of those users is different, right? So uh, as, as we kind of noticed, there's a ton of supply interfaces popping up built on top of compounds, uh, including uh, the compound interface, which is one of those interfaces. But we, we kind of see like a 90 to 10 or even 99 to 1 supply to borrow. Um, so we kind of have that supply side user face. Uh, and then on the borrow side, there's a lot fewer borrowers, um, but those folks have a little bit different needs uh, in terms of what they care about. You know, they care about a liquidation price and kind of what their collateralization ratio is. Um, so we really try to think about it as two user types, uh, a supply user and a borrow user. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. It's interesting. Uh, so you hinted at it a little bit before in terms of your background. So maybe you could uh, just walk us through your background and how you came to work at Compound. Yeah, um, totally. So uh, took the long road <laughs> in every aspect in terms of my kind of career designing and, and getting into crypto. Um, I didn't go to RISD. I didn't go to a you know design school. Um, and actually really didn't figure out that I was really into design until about halfway through college. Um, I grew up in Portland, Oregon. Uh, went to University of Oregon, very Oregon homegrown. Um, but up until about the middle of college, I actually really was only into sports. <laughs> I was like, um, thought that I was going to like play football and then do ski racing and doing all this stuff. Um, but it wasn't really until about college where I, I played a year of college sports and then I was like, hold on, uh, you know, this probably is not the, uh, the life for me. I'm not going to go play in a professional league of any sort. Uh, I should probably figure out what's happening. <laughs> um, so ironically, um, I, I thought accounting uh, was, a, was a dope major. Uh, why? It seemed legit. You know, you could get six figures out of school. Accountants will always be around until robots take over the world, I guess. Um, so it seemed kind of like a, a place to start. You know, a little bit into that time of accounting, I actually did an accounting internship, realized, whoa, this is this is absolutely not for me in any way, and, and kind of ran out as fast as possible. Um, and kind of on the side, uh, as I was exploring that, as sports kind of died down, music really popped up in my life. Uh, and so kind of cliche is probably a lot of people got really into DJing uh, around like 2010, 2012 time period. Um threw up a, a blog house kind of like music website and started having to design for the first time. And I had to pick like a font and, and a color for that, that website. It was called two hype feet. It was actually from a, a lyric from an MC hammer song talking <laughs> about the rhythm and the blues and the two hype feet. Nice. Um, <laughs> nice. So it was, it was kind of going down there, uh, down that path of just kind of doing the music stuff as I was trying to figure out this accounting stuff. Um, starting doing the the website, doing posters for shows and these kind of things got really exciting. And kind of at the same time of getting over that accounting uh, internship, I realized that design was actually a career. Um, I always thought of design as fine art per se, but didn't realize, you know, like the every app that we're interacting with on our smartphone, um, the billboard on the highway, people design those. Uh, and that got me really excited because I've always been into photography and just like style and things, but never really knew how to translate it into design. So it was kind of this moment in the middle of college where I ran from the business school and, and ran into a journalism school at the time uh, with kind of like a focus on advertising, thinking that was kind of the design thing. Um, you know, fast track a little bit, um, you know, as a senior in college, switching careers, not 
really anyone wanted to give me a time of day to practice design. So the school newspaper rejected me from working there because they didn't want to train a senior. Um, design classes uh, and actual design and, and art school uh, shut me down because they, they knew I was an advertising major and they didn't want to train commercial artists. So there I kind of was like dropping out of sports, dropping out of accounting, going to this thing that I was interested in, but everyone is kind of shutting their door on me. Uh, so I was like, all right, music posters it is. Um, and, and really kind of doubled down on that. And that was really kind of my portfolio um, coming out of school. Um, so I really just moved to San Francisco and tried to figure out uh, my way with hustling my music posters around and uh, be like, promise I can design some stuff for you guys. Um, and kind of from there on was just jumping around, hustling different design jobs, really just cutting my teeth until I settled into some design studios where I really kind of got my chops and was making marketing sites for all the fang tech companies, right? Facebook, uh, Google, et cetera. But it was about, you know, during that time, uh, I kind of had this realization of, you know, doing all these marketing sites, doing branding, all these kind of things. It didn't really feel like it had a long shelf life, you know, doing a marketing site for the new Pixel. Cool. That website was up for three months and it was gone, right? We spent six working on it, let's say. Uh, and I really got this kind of desire to go deeper into a product uh, and really try to understand um, why something's being built, who it's being built for, and just really get deeper into that product uh, lifestyle. So. Um, from kind of the agency life, moving down to San Francisco and kind of figuring out the design stuff. Again, all on my own, uh, no help really. Um, kind of finally made that switch into being a product designer instead of maybe more of like a brand designer. There, I went over to Uber um, by way of a very kind of uh, maybe not in the best light company uh, named Auto that got acquired by Uber. Uh, Auto did self-driving semi-trucks. Um, so... We rolled up in the Uber as auto and started a company there that's now a big part of Uber called Uber Freight. Uh, so I was one of the first 10 people there. Um, and about you know two years of that time there was really spent figuring out who truck drivers were, what they wanted, how we could make their life better um, by making an app for them to basically do their job. You know, Towards the end of that, uh, you know, as anyone did, prices were going nuts pretty late into crypto, but prices were going nuts in 2017. I uh, was really fascinated by it um, and, you know, looking at how long haul trucking worked and how that was going to be innovative over time didn't quite hold a candle to kind of what I was seeing in the crypto space. Um, and from there, just kind of dropped everything and ran across the street uh, to Coinbase. And, and, you know, I knew I was really interested in crypto, but wasn't quite sure what about crypto excited me. So my plan there was just kind of go to Coinbase, figure out what was awesome about crypto, and then go find that place. Um, and then about six months ago, went from Coinbase over to Compound and here now. That's really awesome. I, I, I love the the winding road. I think like many people with a design background, myself included, you know, how we got to where we are today is generally not a straight line. <laughs> and and I, I really appreciate the, you know, the hustle, the grind, the self-educational aspects of your story, because I think that's that actually can, in my opinion, really shape a designer, you know, in their in their path forward. Um, so thank you for the background. Let's transition a little bit to Compound. Tell us a little bit about the origin story of Compound and how it's evolved over time. Yeah, as I was kind of saying a little bit before, the, the real origin story was just, you know, in, in, in Robert and Jeff's land, uh, when they were getting interested in crypto, well before I was, um, you know, they've been around, 
for a while and and they you know from robert's experience and as an interest rate analysis kind of saw this big gap uh so seeing that gap in the crypto space that there was no kind of global standard for what an interest rate on an asset would be um really was that that kind of origin story so you know compound started um uh, just a few people and just tried to you know it started off actually as an app uh as opposed to like a web app um same idea always a money market um but started there and you know compound's been around for almost two years now um in terms of like idea to kind of today um However, the core kind of value proper core idea of what Compound is really has never changed, uh, has not really iterated at all. Maybe the approach for, for down the road has a little bit, but um, the, the most simple concept of you know, supply an asset, earn an interest rate. Uh, if you supply assets, you can now borrow against them uh, and use an asset, right? Um, it's been the, the origin concept and, and still the concept today, which you know, as someone working here is cool to see in terms of, you know, there's been a vision and we haven't strayed from it. So you said that, that, you know, the vision hasn't changed, but the approach may be evolving over time. I'm curious, given your, your background with uh, users in particular, can you tell us a little bit about any of the discovery or the user research that's helped inform some of the, the approach toward the vision? Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of funny things uh, in terms of thinking about user experience or user research specific to DeFi. Why? Because DeFi is supposed to be open, um, you know, anonymous, and anyone can kind of show up without needing to have an email and a password login. So the problem with that is, is it makes it pretty difficult to actually kind of track users or do proper user research uh, in any way. <laughs> um so what's been really fascinating is really just the use of Discord uh, by Compound. You know, at Coinbase, it was pretty intense about how um, just every communication is really locked down in terms of privacy and keeping it tight. Uh, when you know they're launching assets that there's insider trading info, if that gets leaked, and kind of all these bad things can happen. Uh, whereas at Compound, where it's really cool because everything is open, right? Uh, we literally have a Discord that has open channels that literally anyone in the world can come join and come talk to us. Um, so that's actually probably the most user interaction we get. But what's cool about that is the users actually come to us. Whereas at Coinbase, it was hard to talk to people, but we could once in a while, but I was always reaching out. Uh, and same thing at Uber, uh, always reaching out. No one was ever knocking on our door to because they love the product so much that they wanted to kind of help, right? Yeah, I think that's a huge advantage of, of working in this space. And it's something that we hear a lot from other projects is, you know, their communities are actually their biggest sources of user feedback and research. I'm curious, do you have any sort of formal or informal approach to uh, sort of standardizing the the input or making sense of that as it's coming through those channels? Really just kind of taking it uh, as they come. You know, we're still pretty small. We're, we're really only 11 people, so we can kind of handle that. We don't have too many processes for that. Um, but I, I think that the biggest difference, and really when you think about users and research and everything about working at a compound versus a Coinbase, let alone an Uber, is that we're a protocol company, right? Um, our goal is that developers all over the world build on top of compounds. Um, and, you know, we have an interface that you can go check out at, you know, app.compound.finance, right? Um, however, like, 
in our world, if that's the fifth best interface, we're, we're stoked by that. Why? Because it means that there's four other ones that are better. Uh, and we actually we care more about inspiring and driving developer activity than we do about you know the user experience on our interface today. So you know, as a designer, that's a pretty interesting challenge because it's like, what do you do? <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and and it's been really interesting. Like how, you know, how do we host a hackathon? What do we do to inspire? Right. Um, and, and, and that's what's been really in- interesting is, is really just thinking about our interface in terms of how do we just dis- inspire people uh, and other projects, other developers to build on top of Compound. Um, so, so I think that's been really interesting to just think about that question, right? How do you inspire people to build um, on your product? Yeah, it's really, it's, it is such an interesting and different dynamic and, you know, certainly from uh, your past experiences. So, you know, to continue on with that a little bit, I'm curious to understand how you are validating your assumptions, uh, particularly for you, your design assumptions, given the sort of squishiness of your target market. Yeah, so we'd love to hear if you could even walk us through some recent examples of how you have made design decisions and then gone out and validated them before sort of rolling them out. Sure, yeah, I can give you a little bit of an overview of actually something that is not quite out yet um, that that we're kind of working on and give you a little insight into that process. So um, as I explained, the, the compound interface, again, separate from the compound protocol, is kind of like our our inspiration board, if you will, right? Um, Mm. Shows how the protocol works from just like a very like dumbed down simple interface. The only difference between the interface and the protocol is there is literally an interface for you to do all the same actions that you could do on the protocol, right? Um, And that's really important to know that the interface can do nothing the protocol uh, can't, right? Um, So in thinking about that, you know, we've kind of had this current interface up that's been up since we launched V2 last May. Um, and it's, you know, you ask a question of like, who's our user, right? And the current interface actually kind of splits our users pretty much perfectly down the middle uh, in terms of the current interface works for supplying, if you just want to do that, as well as borrowing. But it doesn't necessarily work really great for either. Um, you know, if you're if you're only trying to supply assets to compounds, you go to this interface. If you don't go to some other one like Dharma, etc., um, and you have all these weird things like collateral factors and uh, utilization percentages that you quite frankly don't care about, or maybe are even scared from. Um, and as we kind of you know, in that sense of the interface being uh, an inspiration piece, we kind of took a step back and just looked at the uh, environment that we are in today in terms of DeFi, right? What kind of interfaces have popped up? What has been built on top of Compound? And what has been kind of a gaping hole? Uh, And to us, you know, even with the supplier users, the same is true for companies and projects and teams building on top of compounds, you know, it's 99 to one supply focused interfaces versus borrowing. Um, A little deeper insight into how the protocol works is, you know, compound uh, is a liquidity pool of assets, right? Uh, With floating interest rates that are always changing. And for a supplying um, let's say die for that interest rate to go up to go from let's say six percent earning interest to ten percent um, 
the way that that's infected is borrowers increases happening, right? So uh, more people borrowing die, the supply rate goes up. Less people borrowing die, supply rate goes down. Um, but it's all sort of kind of economics tied, right? So um, if for some reason no one's borrowing die, the supply rate will go way down, right? And maybe the suppliers will get bummed out. However, it's kind of cheap money to borrow for the borrowers. So in, you know, in a game theory land, um, more borrowers should show up and that kind of all evens out. However, jumping back to kind of our interface and, and inspiration, um, you know, if all the interfaces in the world are supply only, then that's really kind of hurting how the dynamics of the interest rate um, and protocol is actually balanced. Um, so in really rethinking kind of our interface and, and how we're trying to um, just keep that up, uh, we really want to focus on that borrowing side and, and really just making something that's seamless for borrowers to make sure that as more and more supply interfaces are turned on, there is something balancing that out on the borrowing side. Um, so how we went about that is is really through Discord, right? Like um, hearing different users talk about these problems, uh, diagnosing them, and you know realizing some of them have quite a substantial amount of money, Um in, in compounds, but don't necessarily know how MetaMask works or don't necessarily know how liquidations work because it hasn't been really clear. Um, so that was kind of our, our input from Discord that we've then taken over to the product land and, and kind of gone into this world of designing our, our newer interface that we're kind of working on that's, that's really focused on, on the borrowing half. You know, we hope that we can make a really simple, a little bit more borrow first interface that can then inspire additional borrowing interfaces to pop up uh, to kind of balance that two-sided market. I wanted to touch on one thing uh, that you mentioned a little bit earlier in in the last answer, uh, which was you mentioned that in a lot of these DeFi interfaces, we're seeing uh, concepts and terminology pop up that, you know, either is, is not explained well, or you don't really know if your user base is familiar enough to, to really understand what's happening or to really understand that interface. And, you know, you, you guys are obviously trying to back away from that, but I'm curious as you come across some, any of those gaping holes where you're like, this thing needs to be explained differently, or we're missing some fundamental uh, uh, foundational learning here. Are you going to the Discord community to test those things to see if certain concepts resonate? We are. I would say a little bit more in private with kind of users that we have grown familiar with, as opposed sure. to just kind of posting in a room and, and kind of anyone giving feedback. Um, yeah, I'd say we have like I, I, almost compound ambassadors, if you will, uh, that, that we kind of will ping and, and kind of chat with to, to test some of those things. Um, but kind of the opposite side of the thinking really for us has been hearing the repetition of problems and hearing the repetition of things that have been confusing and just kind of making that our goal is tackling those items, right? Like um, something really, really simple uh, that sounds like the smallest change in the world actually changes like the mindset quite drastically. So as an example, in the current interface, if you uh, are a borrower, there is this thing called borrowing power, right? Um, really taking a nod from, you know, other fintech apps like a Robinhood with like purchasing power, et cetera, right? The problem with borrowing power is, you know, it's like asking someone what borrowing power meant on the side of the street, they'd be like, oh, it's like how much I can use. But the problem is when you get to zero <laughs> borrowing power left, uh, you actually can get liquidated, right? So sure. that, that mindset is not actually very safety focused and it kind of 
feels like I can just use it, but then people get scared because they don't realize how dangerous they could be to being liquidated. So literally just changing that term from borrowing power to borrow limits, uh, like drastically changes the mindset of like, oh, I don't want to use all of that, or I don't want to go past this. Um, so it, it literally can be down as, as how we word certain things to help kind of give that larger uh, affordance. Uh, could absolutely. be as simple as, as copy there. Yeah, no, it can make a huge difference. Absolutely. You know, you talked about the upcoming designs that you're working on for the new interface. I'd love to understand how you plan to take that to market. So you said you've been working on it. You're doing some sort of ambassador testing what is the next step and how do you plan to get that out? And, you know, again, how, uh, how are you ensuring that, you know, the design decisions that you're making are, are the right ones along the way? Totally. So great question. I think a big thing about being an 11 person company is needing to have a little bit of intuition, uh, as opposed to, you know, being at an Uber or Coinbase where we're going to do rounds of user testing. So a little bit more fast and loose, uh, in terms of that. Um, however, again, really just like, you know, our, our, our pillars are hearing from the users in Discord and feeling confident enough that hearing about X six or seven times from three or four different people is probably as good a signal as we're going to get. So if we focus on some of those things and use all of our experience combined to make that great, uh, should be all right. But, you know, in typical tech fashion, you know, if something is wrong, we can always fix it. Um, specifically on the interface side as opposed to the protocol side. How do we get this actually to market? You know, really just start building it. Um, you know, hopefully in, let's say, you know, five, six weeks, uh, we should see something new there. A lot of these projects, DeFi in particular, you're talking about smart contracts that are potentially impacting a lot of value. I'm curious, do you guys have a, what is what is your shipping process look like? I'm assuming you do some sort of testing, but does design have any role in that process? Not too much at the smart contract level. Uh, we are, you know, super intense about safety first. We would always rather take a little bit more time, have our smart contracts audited two or three more redundant times than necessary than shipping anything fast, right? So anything that happens on the protocol level or any of the smart contracts, that is going to be done like crazily meticulously and very slow <laughs> uh, that'll be audited you know we work with three or four different teams of auditors um, so we feel very comfortable and safe on that aspect however never resting and always doubling down on that when we're talking about everything we've been talking about on the interface side um, that's not touching any of the smart contracts any of the protocol in any way, when we make changes there, it's again, it's just like a simple front end interface, right? Um, so those we can change quite a bit more easily. We don't want to change them very often, just in terms of compound not wanting to interact with these things as much and really have them be for the community. Um, but those changes on the interface, much more comfortable changing uh, and much less worried about any kind of safety there uh, in terms of the protocol is what the interface is interacting with, and that's where all of our safety checks and measures are. Yeah, that, that makes a ton of sense. Um, a, a moment ago, you said you know you're you're a ten person team, so you know by the numbers, that's pretty small. That's a, a small startup that's you know having to make the most of resources. I'm curious uh, what kind of challenges you guys might be facing on a day to day basis, and you know go as big as you want with this. This could be things with regard to building a business. It could be things like you know, gaining user adoption. It could be things like developing community. What are your thoughts there? 
I would just add one other uh, consideration there is even inter-team dynamics and how you work with uh, the other folks on your team. So I think this is maybe feel like the same answer for any 10-person company, company. Uh, but the biggest challenge, without a doubt, is figuring out what to prioritize. You know, with 10 people, there's only so much you can do. So you have to be very judicious in terms of stack ranking what is most important and focusing on that, right? If all 10 of us went in different directions, we could meet back up in three weeks and not have much done as opposed to all of us focused on one thing. So without a doubt, the most important and challenging thing is just figuring out what do we do next and making sure it's the most important thing for us to work on. Uh, It's okay to be wrong. It's okay to, you know, think something is important and ended up not being but as long as we're collaborating, checking in, and, and you know revisiting that stack ranking constantly, we, we feel pretty good about that. Outside of that, you know, probably just the general scare of smart contracts. Are they safe? <laughs> Have we checked everything 105 times? Should we do 106? Yes. Um, but that is just like a non-zero risk that will, will never go away. Um, so just thinking about anything we can do in our process, uh, really on the protocol side, which is stepping a little bit away from design, uh, just to really ensure the most secure and safe um, type of building, you know, coming from Coinbase, who also echoes that same se- sentiment of safety first, um, never get hacked, knock on wood, you know, that principle and that approach to doing work it, it has been very much upheld here. Coinbase Ventures were an investor of Compound. Um, so it's kind of, even though I've gone from Coinbase to Compound, you know, it's, it's all still in the family there. Um, so that same bit of security is really important. So I wanted to go back quickly to uh, the prioritization topic and kind of ask a two-part question. Uh, part one is, could you maybe just give us a bit of an overview of the breakdown of the team among the 10 or 11 people that you have and then the second part is, how do you actually go about making those prioritization decisions among that full group? Sure, yeah. So almost everyone at Compound is an engineer. Um, I think we have about four non-engineers. Those are design. Uh, we have general counsel. Uh, we have kind of a, a biz ops and strategy lead. Uh, and then HR and kind of recruiting. But other than those four, everyone is an engineer. Uh, even though you know Robert himself is not an engineer, he is extremely technically um, uh, knowledgeable, and you know he's even can jump in and rip, uh, rip some front end code. <laughs> so uh, uh, <laughs> nice. that that's saying a little bit more than than I can even. So um, very engineering heavy in terms of that breakdown, and everyone except for one is an SF, so not a remote team either. In terms of prioritizing, I think you know I, I joined in April of this year. And really up until now, the focus has been checking off everything, covering our bases, uh, and and something I like to say in terms of uh, eating our vegetables, (laughs) meaning, you know, we got to get all the stuff done that we need to for Compound to look legit. What does that mean? That means, you know, getting a cohesive brand, updating all of the marketing site materials, making the dev docs more legit so developers feel more taken care of and thought of when they're they're even thinking and considering about building on Compound. That means making sure we have a markets page that can show anyone in the world what is going on on the protocol level, right? Checking off all these things so that, you know, some developer can discover Compound and they say, oh, they're legit, right? That wasn't quite the case, you know, a year ago. 
So now that we've kind of prioritized eating our vegetables and making sure everything is, is checked off and that compound looks legit and has everything for anyone to get started, we're really kind of shifting our focus now that all those properties are up to how can compounds continue to exist if a meteor hit our office? <laughs> and, and what I mean is we really believe in the ethos of open finance and decentralization. So our really big next focus as a team is thinking about how to remove compound from every point of kind of a single person point of failure as possible. And that is definitely a big challenge. <laughs> so that, that was, there's many months of brainstorming to try to figure out the, the proper way to do that. Um, but that is absolutely number one on that stack rank right now. So one of the things that we um, really want to be able to give back to the community with this podcast, uh, we started this podcast, number one, out of curiosity, but number two, to help people that are building products, because we'd come from a traditional product and UX background. And so, you know, that has its own set of struggles. And we really wanted to understand, you know, what's what's different about building things in this new world of crypto and blockchain, and what are the teams that are really, you know, kicking ass and shipping things? What are they doing um, differently? Um, what are they What are they optimizing for? So most of the teams that are working in this space outside of the Coinbase's of the world are still fairly small. You know, so you've got to be scrappy. You've got to optimize the resources that you do have. In a lot of startups that I've worked with, you know, it's less about the role and it's more about the skills that we need to get the thing done. And so I'm curious from your perspective, if you were, you know, mentoring a team in the space right now, what are the top skills that you think collectively as a team uh, you need to have to be able to succeed uh, in this this new world of crypto and blockchain? Sure. Yeah, I think almost, almost uh, relating back to our earlier question uh, of kind of what's the big challenge really and is, is really, again, choosing what to work on and and being really focused right like you see a lot of these companies that pivot every two months because they've you know had this new grandiose idea but they've pivoted every two months for a year straight and and you look back and nothing's really built so i think like one of the most important things is just pure focus like figure out a vision stick with it and see it to the end uh, if it doesn't work learn about it and take that into the next step. Um, so I, I definitely think focus is just crazy big. And then specifically to the DeFi space, really having a focus and a, an ethos for decentralization, uh, I think is really important because having some kind of mix mash decentralized approaches is not why everyone is in DeFi. Sure, again, it's not going to be perfectly decentralized today or maybe even a year from now, but that is the long-term plan and hopefully should be for everyone. Um, so just really making sure that that is being baked into your business from <clears throat> a thinking and a team from day one. Um, I think you've seen different projects who've maybe had a little bit more of that approach and kind of seen where they are now. Um, and it's generally been a lot more successful. I know you all have done, uh, you touched a little bit on it uh, in terms of community development before. Uh, I also know that you all have taken some interesting approaches to, for example, uh, reaching out to the community to have them vote on what asset to list next. So I, I'd love to just toss you an open-ended question around you know, how you all think about community development and what are some of the interesting things that you think Compound is doing on that front? Totally. I'll actually kind of take that question and change it a little bit in terms of talking about um, how we kind of think about features uh, in general, specific to DeFi, and not just Compound specifically, but maybe anyone. Um, sure. And more so about, you know, 
right? The, the ethos of decentralization is that no one should, you know, have any of your personal information if you don't want them to, right? Um, should not have emails, should not have names, date of births, all these types of things. You know, that's why people are in open finance to, to not have these centralized companies storing all your data, data breaches, et cetera, et cetera. And so the, the challenge with that and, and speaking to our community, right, is that there's a lot of features that people that have done anything in tech and, and not working in tech, but just interacted with different tech products kind of get to know learn and expect from different products, right? When I use Uber, I expect to get an email that shows the ride, the price, et cetera, et cetera. When I'm shopping on Amazon, I'm expected to have tracking for the thing I ordered, which knows where it's being shipped to. The problem in DeFi and you know, specific to Compound is specifically with our Compound interface, Nothing that is on the interface touches any servers at Compound ever. We have no idea who is using it, and, and and we like kind of mutually understand that neither party wants to, right? Uh, the problem here is all those features that we want, like for instance, for a borrower who wants to get an email notification if they're close to getting liquidated, we, we simply can't do in, in this DeFi space. Which I think long term for user experience, because we all know that nothing in crypto is great in terms of user experience and trying to show crypto to our parents, our mom and dad <laughs> is not going to go over very well, right? Um, it so, did not. Yeah. So I <laughs> no, think like... A, 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 it does not. <laughs> You know, a, a really big thing uh, that I've been kind of working on and, and thinking about um, is just kind of this concept of opting in to features in DeFi, right? Um, when you sign up for, you know, any service, let's say Airbnb even, um, you know, you sign up, you get a login and password, but you've also accidentally opted into all these other features that you don't really know if you want or not, right? We all have infinite amount of spam in our emails from these services. We have different things that are being tracked or, or talked about, et cetera, that we didn't necessarily know we were signing up for. Um, and, and kind of the, the way of Web 2.0 and tech today is it's very much like you can sign up for something, but you have to opt out of everything you don't want, right? And, and DeFi, there's, there's a kind of opportunity to provide some of these feature sets that users are used to, you know, like getting an email after an Uber, but in a way that is not invasive and kind of ruins the privacy and decentralized ethos that is DeFi. Uh, so an example of that could be that, and this isn't specific to Compound in any way, it could be for any DeFi project, right? Um, but using Compound Interface as an example, uh, there could be a world where if you want to get email alerts, uh, you can if you're willing to give up your email. Right. And so that's an opt in approach um, that I think is really interesting. Um, and I think it'll be really interesting to see what pieces of data or information people are willing to give up for what features and services. Um, you know, am I willing to give up an email to get uh, these email notifications? Am I willing to give up something else to get this other feature? Right. So the kind of this concept of opting in in DeFi, I think, is really interesting. And it kind of solves both problems of I want the features, but I don't want to give up my privacy. But maybe there's a certain piece of that information that I'm willing to give up to get some of those features. So in terms of kind of community building, et cetera, really like to think about how we can provide features that people want without throwing away the entire reason of people in DeFi, which is their privacy and kind of decentralization. Yeah, I, I, I love that. I think that's a really balanced way to think about it. And it, it, we could go down a whole other rabbit hole, but it would probably turn into season three, which is, how, you know, when we introduce sovereign identity to this equation, 
and mash it up with this idea of letting people opt in for particular pieces of information, but, but being very open and disclosing what that information is used for and what they get for it. That's, I think, a really exciting territory to explore from a product perspective. So final final questions. It's kind of a two-parter. Um, the first one uh, is, as, as a designer at Compound, what's keeping you up at night? Second question is, if you fast forward five years from now, how has the world changed with Compound in it? Totally. So keeping me up at night, general smart contract risk. We have a, a markets page, compound.finance uh, slash markets, right? You know, one of the first things I do when I wake up every day is check that page. You know, are the numbers still there? <laughs> is the money still in the protocol, right? Um, so that's an inherent like Ethereum and smart contract risk. Number one thing keeping me up is making sure everything is safe. <laughs> um, that, you know, the money's still in the protocol every day and not for our well-being, but just knowing that, you know, our number one goal is that no users ever lose funds. So Anything I can do to, to make sure that doesn't happen um, is number one priority. Um, maybe a second answer to that question, um, just making sure that both sides of our marketplace are healthy, right? That means for each supply interface, how are we increasing the number of borrowers also happening? Um, so so kind of making sure that, you know, general risk, general safety, as well as that both sides of the marketplace are, are kind of doing well. How is Compound? Where is Compound in five years? That is really exciting to all of us here. Um, and the answer is, you know, we hope that Compound isn't around to help Compound become Compound then. Uh, and that sounds very meta and crazy, but, you know, back to talking about how do we decentralize a protocol and how do we make sure that Compound is safe and all user funds are safe, even if a meteor hit our office, right? That is a crazy thing to think about when you start to think about governance in of crypto, right? You know, Maker, Zero X, you know, we've done little votes before, but they haven't been on chain per se. But trying to basically remove ourselves from the equation and really kind of hand over the protocol to the users and to the community is really exciting and really scary. Um, so, you know, hopefully in five years, that will happen hopefully way before then, but in five years, we'll be seeing like the, the benefits um, and actions of users governing a protocol that has been handed over to them. If the users want to add a new asset, they can vote on that and, and sort that out amongst themselves and vote to add it. Someone can add a new C token contract and add that and everyone can verify it and make sure it's safe. That's a really crazy world to really think about just handing over everything uh, to the community. But that's what's really exciting about crypto and you know why we're here doing it. Yeah, super exciting. Are you all looking at and considering using something like Aragon for decentralizing governance? I, I think in terms of how we're thinking about governance and, and how we're thinking about, you know, all the actions, you know, even like price oracles that uh, kind of compound mm. is, a, is a point of failure on um, are super wide out in the open in terms of how we're thinking about it. Nothing is shut off from, no, we won't do that approach. And nothing is, that is our approach yet. Um, we are, we are, every idea is a good idea still um, and, and super wide open because we're really starting to go underway of, of taking on this big project. Um, so yeah, no real decisions have, have been made in any way. Mostly just a lot of research and trying to understand other projects, what's worked, what hasn't. Uh, I think everyone is probably well aware of how abysmal governance um, 
uh, kind of interaction rates are. If you go look at Maker, you know, some of the last ability fee votes, it's like 12 users voted, right? Um, yeah. That is, that is really, really small. And so the things we're thinking about are what are the incentives and mechanics that allow more than 12 users to want to vote and participate um, in, in that governance system. And what that means is, you know, it's really maybe it's a really slow governance system uh, that there's only one vote a month and therefore it's easier to interact with that one as opposed to rolling always votes um, or proposals. So um, yeah, every, everything is open. Nothing is a bad idea yet. Um, and it'll, it'll be interesting to see where we land. Very cool. Yeah. The, the whole decentralized governance space is I think very interesting to us and seems to be, uh, you know, heating back up after the, uh, unfortunate DAO. Uh, okay. So to wrap up, um, you know, that's the end of our questions, but we did want to see if there were any things that you want to promote or plug on the show. Go use Compound. Check it out uh, if you haven't. Um, if you're a developer, uh, go check out our dev docs. Um, let us know if we can make it better. If you have an idea of a cool protocol feature, let us know. Jump in Discord. Um, you know, we might add it. Who knows? Um, but very least, definitely, you know, if you're interested in Compound, the best way to learn more about Compound is to be in the Discord. Um, myself included, Robert, etc., are in there every day answering questions from users. So if anyone is interested at all in Compound, definitely uh, join the Discord. Awesome. Thank you so much, Jason. This has been a great conversation. Fantastic. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, appreciate it, guys. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Fork the Product. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, or share this podcast with all your crypto friends. See you next time.